Hello everybody and welcome to LawPod. My name is Conor McCormick. I'm a senior lecturer here in the law school and director of graduate studies. I'm joined today by Dervla Minogue from the GLAN project, who has recently joined the law school as a visiting fellow. Dervla, welcome. I wonder could I ask you to tell us a little bit more about your background? Thanks, Connor. Sure. I'm a senior lawyer at the Global Legal Action Network, or GLAN, working on supply chain accountability and open source evidence cases. I'm also a consultant solicitor at Bindman's LLP in London and an executive committee member of Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights. So the purpose of today's podcast episode is to introduce GLAN to the wider student body and indeed all of LawPod's listeners who have an interest in human rights, international law or social justice lawyering. Our hopes being that we can inspire postgraduate students in particular to apply to join us on the new project we're just launching this year. Durba, would you mind telling us a bit more about GLAN and Bellingcat, who I know you work closely with? Absolutely. Um, so GLAN, or Global Legal Action Network, is a UK-based uh, non-profit organisation which focuses on what we call cross-border legal action. So we bring cases in one country which have an effect in another country, usually against a powerful actor involved in human rights violations. So really we focus on court cases which can have a ripple effect or a systemic effect across a sector, the sector in question. Our partners at Bellingcat are most well known for their online open source investigations. Bellingcat is a Netherlands-based organization which conducts online investigations and has broken a lot of major stories in the last several years, including the well-known case of the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17, which was shot down over eastern Ukraine in 2014. Bellingcat discovered through online investigations that the plane had been shot down by a missile launcher that they traced using open source images and videos from inside Russia crossing the border into Ukraine. Thanks very much, Dervla. Just in terms of the next question, I wanted to ask if you could tell us some examples of legal cases which GLAN has brought in the past. Absolutely. Um, One of our main cases is still ongoing. We have an appeal set for hearing in May 2024 in the Court of Appeal of England, England and Wales. The parties are the World Uyghur Congress and the National Crime Agency, and we're representing the World Uyghur Congress against the National Crime Agency. And the case centres around the production of cotton in the Uyghur region of China um, through the forced labour of Uyghur people. And our argument is actually that the cotton itself that comes from this region amounts to what's called criminal property under the Proceeds of Crime Act. And therefore, the National Crime Agency should itself be prosecuting UK individuals and companies that are handling and importing this cotton. So we have an appeal coming up around whether the National Crime Agency actually exercised its powers lawfully when it decided not to investigate. So this is a major case which will have ramifications across all sorts of sectors in the UK, given that the principle that it establishes is that if you import any kind of produce or property that's been derived from criminal human rights violations abroad, you could be committing committing a criminal offence. Another case my colleagues at GLAN have been running is the case of Duarte Agostino and others versus Portugal and 32 other states at the European Court of Human Rights. 
in which Glan and our clients have been arguing that the 32 member states of the Council of Europe have not been doing enough to protect our clients against the effects of climate change. Thanks for that, Dervla. And could you tell us more specifically about the types of evidence um, obtained online that might be used in criminal proceedings like those? Absolutely. So criminal prosecutions have obviously always relied to some extent on videos and photographs, whether it's CCTV or other photographs. But the advent of the internet has meant that many, many atrocity crimes are filmed by passers-by and individual citizens and posted online. So the legal community has been grappling with how to use these videos and pictures as evidence in prosecutions. There's been a slow drip-feeding of cases which have started to use this material, but it's still very much not established how the courts will treat it. Uh, One well-known example of the use of open-source video in criminal proceedings is the Al-Warfali case, which took place at the ICC. It's now been discontinued because the defendant is deceased, but it got to the stage of an arrest warrant being issued against Al-Warfali on the basis seemingly of almost exclusively social media evidence which included several videos that actually depicted him in the act of executing prisoners. Apart from this example, there haven't been very many uh, uses of online audiovisual evidence in war crimes prosecutions. However, there are some very active organizations which are collecting this kind of information. For example, the IIIM mechanism for Syria is very heavily involved in preserving the the masses of content that have appeared in respect of the Syrian conflict. And of course, Ukraine is a case in point where a lot of that conflict has played out on social media and people, organizations and institutions alike are scrambling to collect and gather as much of that evidence as possible, um, including ourselves at Glon and Bellingcat. That is interesting, Dervla. I'm just wondering about the prevalence of things like deep fakes and fake news and the kind of effect of those things on the reliability of this kind of evidence and the work you you have been doing, I believe, with Glan and Billingcat to try and counter some of the concerns a judge might have about questions of trust and reliability. Absolutely, it's a huge question. We started thinking about this back in 2018 when we wanted to collect this kind of evidence and push for accountability for coalition airstrikes taking place in Yemen, it was clear that there was absolutely loads of this open source evidence out there. But we knew that if you tried to present it to a judge without the proper background information, without the proper verification, that you would be met with extreme skepticism. And there wasn't at the time any kind of framework for collecting the evidence in a way that would satisfy even the most fundamental requirements of court standards. Since then, the Berkeley Protocol has been published, but at the time that wasn't even um, in existence. So we got together with Bellingcat, us as a legal organization, Bellingcat as an investigations organization, to try and put our heads together and work out a sort of first principles methodology which could allow us to collect the information in a way that would satisfy a judge that it's not just some random piece of content plucked out of millions of terabytes of information on the internet that, you know, could be anything, could be fake, could be real, over to the other side of the spectrum, which is that this has been collected according to a very methodical, rigorous process, and then separately it's been verified according to 
kind of well-established and validated methods, including things like geolocation, chronolocation, cross-referencing, contextual analysis, all of which I can elaborate on and which the participants of this project will, will learn a lot about. So this methodology we trialed at a hackathon event, we called it a hackathon, we got together sort of the world's leaders in open source investigation and asked them to investigate a range of airstrikes that took place in Yemen, seeing what they could find, seeing how feasible this methodology was. This was a great learning experience for us because we worked out what was going to be feasible, how, how much extra time it would take to follow this methodology and so on. And then the final stage in the project was a really fascinating exercise in which we, we still, we were confident with our methodology, but we weren't sure whether the admissibility rules in England and Wales could ever admit a piece of online content where the creator wasn't available in court to give evidence of its provenance. So obviously the normal way that you would introduce a piece of video evidence would be the owner of the CCTV camera or the person who filmed it on their phone, they would come in and say, I confirm that I filmed this, I haven't edited it, it's authentic, and that's how you'd get it in. Whereas obviously you don't have that with a piece of open source video. So we staged a mock admissibility hearing before the judge, Joanna Corner, who was at the time a Crown Court judge in England and Wales, but she's since moved over to the International Criminal Court and is sitting as a judge there. And she presided over this mock admissibility hearing where we introduced a video, a real video, from Yemen to see whether a Bellingcat expert could actually get it over the hurdle of admissibility based on their verification and their analysis. And it worked. The, the fictional judge granted the piece of evidence or admitted the piece of evidence. All of that, all of those proceedings are on YouTube so they can be watched by anyone who's interested. It sounds like a, a great idea for anybody who's interested in applying to take part in our school project. To, to view that proceedings, that set of proceedings. I wonder if I could take you back maybe just briefly to some of those reliability enhancing techniques for want of a better term. So you mentioned chronolocation and geolocation, maybe just as two examples to give a window into this work. If you could tell us a little bit about what happens in order to try and do those things. Sure. So geolocation is using, I guess, visual and other contextual information to literally just find the location at which a particular photo or video was filmed. So, you know, an example of an easy geolocation would be someone just takes a picture of the graduate building outside. It's very distinctive. Somebody who uh, is familiar with the university could tell straight away. Somebody who isn't might need to do a bit more research, but they would ultimately be able to find the location and not very many people would necessarily query it. There are some more complicated geolocations um, in regions where the landmarks are not so distinctive, which involve comparing, for example, particular buildings with particular shapes, with things like trees, movable, immovable objects. The investigators essentially try and identify items in the images which can be cross-referenced with other known images and videos like satellite imagery on Google Maps, Google Earth, Google Street View, anything that they know is reliable that they can then use to compare with these sort of questioned images that they're looking at. And it's a very good verification technique because if you can identify where a picture has been taken, you can essentially eliminate at the possibility that it's been repurposed from a different situation or a different conflict. The Bellingcat investigators will tell you that 
a lot of the misinformation that they see is not actually deep fakes. It's um, repurposed information, repurposed videos, which were actually filmed in a different conflict at a different time. You even see it now with images coming out from what's happening in Gaza. People are using images from Syria, images from the previous conflict, claiming that they're happening now. And it's very helpful to geolocate something because you can easily say, that's not Palestine, it's Syria, or that's not Ukraine, it's Russia, or whatever. It's also a lot more difficult to stage a deep fake in a real location. So if you can identify that something has been filmed in a, in a real place, it sort of reduces the likelihood that somebody has managed to stage a very convincing deep fake that has exactly the right characteristics of the real place. So geolocation is a very, it really advances your confidence that a video is authentic. Chronolocation is obviously, as the name suggests, finding out what time or even what date a video was filmed. It can be done, you know, using any methods really. Sometimes a piece of content will be like a dash cam or a CCTV where you're essentially looking at the, the reported time that something was filmed. But the majority of the time, it's done by shadow analysis, by the Bellingcat investigators at least. So they'll measure either the length or the trajectory of a shadow, or sometimes the length of a shadow relative to the height of the object or person casting it. And then they'll triangulate that with what they know about the position of the sun on that date, and they can actually work out what time something was filmed. I can't claim to know how to do it, but I gather that it's very reliable within a certain window. It's not the most exact science, but it does give you a window of time at which something was filmed. And it can be very instructive because, for example, if an airstrike takes place and this is the situation that we were up against in the mock trial I mentioned, in the fictional scenario, the defendant had said, Yes, there was an airstrike, but it took place at 7.30 a.m. when there were no civilians present. Whereas the prosecution case was no, it took place at 10.30 where, when the markets were all full of people. So in that kind of situation, being able to narrow down the exact time was very important. And yeah, chronolocation can uh, really help to achieve that. Excellent. So I think that, that will really help listeners to understand some of the techniques and why they're important and I suppose some of the students as well who, who might be interested in working on this project we're developing. The next question I was going to ask was about current investigations. So you referred just now to Gaza and the outbreak of violence there. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the work that Glan and or Bellingcat is doing in response to those events and perhaps as well something about uh, Ukraine as well. Sure. So to talk about Ukraine first, Glan and Bellingcat have really since the, the first days of the Russian invasion have been working more formally together to, to really finalize that methodology I mentioned and put it together as a more formalized justice and accountability unit in which investigators from Bellingcat are especially trained according to the methodology there's now a team of about seven or eight uh, investigators working solely on events taking place in Ukraine with a view to passing whatever information they obtain to official prosecutors, whether international or domestic, who are investigating war crimes in Ukraine. The current set of investigations that the team are working on, have been working on for the last year, is the use of cluster munition attacks 
on Kharkiv towards the beginning of the conflict. Other plans that Glon has have been in place for some time relating to Palestine. Unfortunately, they've just become a lot more relevant in the last uh, week. We've been working on the potential for uh, to challenge the supply of arms between the UK and Israel for use on Gaza, but also on um, civilians in the West Bank in Palestine. So it could be the case that such a case would be ongoing and might require the input of the participants in this project. Thank you very much, Dervla. I know we've agreed and discussed as part of the preliminary work leading up to this project, which is just about to begin, that students will be invited to participate in a whole range of projects, though not required to participate in any with which they may be uncomfortable. Could you tell us a little bit more about the range of projects that will be open to students involved in this programme? Definitely. The cases that we're currently working on could involve anything from the project about Ukraine that I just mentioned, or it could involve things like airstrikes taking place in Gaza, or it could involve environmental crimes taking place in the likes of Jamaica or West Papua. There's a range of potential options for students to work on, and it's important to stress that students would never be required to work on a situation that they found traumatic or upsetting, and that there are policies in place for mitigating the risk of things like vicarious trauma, which can be a side effect of working on these kinds of cases. And I think it's right to say that part of the training package, um, which will be provided to students who agree to take part in the project will include further information about vicarious trauma, among other ethical issues associated with the project. Absolutely. Um, We've taken our trauma policy from the policy operated by Bellingcat. So they've been working in this area for quite a long time and they've worked out the best ways to mitigate the, the negative effects of working on this kind of content. And the first principle is really, you can walk away at any time and stop working on this content. I think that's a really important part of the project, Dervla, and worth emphasising for the purposes of this episode. It's obviously a a tricky balance for people who are interested in pursuing work as a human rights lawyer, where that kind of exposure is part and parcel of the job. But as students, there will be appropriate safeguards in place to ensure that those who decide against pursuing that path aren't overly exposed. And it's also the case that a lot of these projects inevitably give rise to the need for legal research, whether it's the law of evidence or substantive international law. So any participants who decided that the visual side of things was too much for them could always work on the legal side. Which I think speaks to a broader question about the type of skills students, first of all, are expected to have in order to participate, but also the types of skills that they're likely to refine and enhance by participating. So are there any skills you're on the lookout for in particular from applicants? There's no specific skill that we're on the lookout for. It's always helpful if people are interested in and knowledgeable about the law, but also about technology. However, the most important attribute we've found working on this in this area over the years has just been curiosity, creativity, the, the, the willingness to spend time working through large amounts of detail and just generally a drive to find out the answer to a question. So I think that if 
people listening to this think that they might be interested, they should just give it a try because people don't know until they start whether they're, you know, very well suited to online investigations. So I'd encourage people to just give it a go. And perhaps rather than starting blind, a good place to start might be the YouTube video of the admissibility hearing you mentioned earlier. And you might have other suggestions for gateway materials for people who are interested in doing this sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. There are several good guides. Amnesty International has a very good guide on how to get started in open source investigation, which will provide the links to, in addition to some materials from Bellingcat and ourselves at Glon. So people won't be starting blind if they if they read a couple of the introductory materials. That's a helpful selection of further reading and watching materials, Dervla, thank you. To wrap things up, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about the kind of job opportunities which may be open to students who participate? I think the possibilities are endless because this is such a new area that everybody involved in criminal prosecutions and human rights is interested in. For example, lawyers working on international criminal prosecutions need to know how open source evidence is used. They need to know the practicalities, but also the legal side. They need to know how the the substantive content that's found online can feed into a legal analysis of whether a crime has been committed. And at the moment, Glan and Bellingcat are really still at the cutting edge of this developing field. So I think that people who develop an expertise in this early on are really at an advantage if they want to work in in public international law. I also think that working for human rights organizations is a huge advantage to know about this area because each human rights documentation NGO now has an open source investigations team in addition to, you know, major journalistic outlets like the New York Times. But I think more broadly anything where evidence is required, I think it's going to be an advantage to to know how to use this material and to have a, a full grasp of the underlying concepts um, will be a major advantage. Excellent. Dervla, thank you very much for giving us your time today. I am delighted that we've been able to set up this new partnership and I think it's a truly fantastic opportunity for students from any programme at the master's level. So I'm thinking in particular perhaps of law and technology students, international human rights law students. But really, students from any programme may find themselves having to grapple with this sort of evidence, so I can see its appeal across the board more clearly after this conversation. So thank you again. If anybody listening who is enrolled as a postgraduate student at Queen's would like to apply to participate, you should by now have received the advertisement explaining how to do so. We do ask that you complete the task to the best of your ability, but if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch with either Dervla or myself. Thank you very much for listening, everybody.